This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Welcome to a podcast edition of Max and Murphy. Uh, many of our listeners will know that we've been on WBAI for several months, but uh, because of some difficulties at that station, which are too complicated to go into, we are now back to doing a podcast. We're very happy to be doing it, and we have a very special episode planned for today. Yeah, this is great. Uh, we are talking just two weeks before Election Day, but also just a few days before the inaugural early voting in New York, which is an exciting test run for next year's huge election year. But there are things on the ballot this year. There's charter revision amendments that the New York City Charter Revision Commission has put forward, five ballot questions. But then there's also a second public advocate special election of the year. Yes, we've had this show now for three years. This is the third public advocate election we've covered because of the 2017 vote leading to uh, the resignation of Tish James after she became attorney general. And then, of course, the special election in February of this year and now a general election. And uh, we're going to be speaking over the course of the next 45 minutes or so to all three candidates who are on the ballot. Three candidates for public advocate on this ballot, early voting, election day this year. Whoever wins this special election has the seat for the rest of the term 2020 and 2021 until the next city election cycle. And that person could run for re-election again because they would not be term limited. No term limits at play for the next election, no matter who wins, even if it is the incumbent, Jamani Williams, who won the February special election, basically winning for the rest of this year and now another special election for the rest of the term. So if that's not confusing enough, put it aside. The basic gist is everybody in New York City can vote for public advocate either through early voting this year or on election day, November 5th. And we are joined by all three candidates for this episode of Max and Murphy. First, Joseph Borelli, city council member of Staten Island, Republican nominee, then Devin Balkand, the Libertarian nominee who also ran in 2017 and lost, uh, and then Jamani Williams, the Democratic incumbent. And those are the three candidates on the ballot. That's the order you'll hear from them here in this episode today. Enjoy and let us know what you think. Max and Murphy, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax, Jarrett's at Jarrett Murphy, and stay tuned for other great episodes. But here are the three public advocate candidates. City Council Member Joe Borelli, thanks for joining us again. You came to my office, guys. You're here. <laughs> we talked with you at length this summer about a little bit about you running for public advocate, a lot about sort of the New York Republican Party, where it's at, where it's headed. But now that we're into October and we're just a short way away from early voting and then Election Day, we wanted to catch up with you a little bit again about your race for public advocate. So thank you. So, public advocate is a job that most people in America have no idea what it is. Probably some people in New York City don't know what it is. Someone from out of time comes to you and says, what the heck is a public advocate? What's your answer? It's a useless position that the city should weigh removing if they don't improve it to a degree that makes it worth something to the taxpayers. Because uh, even after this last charter revision, uh, the, the powers aren't expanded greatly. Uh, and in my opinion, and in the opinion of, I imagine, a lot of people, it still doesn't perform any serious function that warrants spending millions upon millions of doctors, uh, dollars to elect and staff this office. We have a great system called 311. If you want to complain, you can call 311. You'll get a number. There'll be follow-up. You can see. You, you, can, you can get mad. You can get mad at the mayor and say, look, I, here's my 311 number. No one fixed the pothole. 
Um, if you have a really localized problem, you can call one of 51 council members that know the details of your issue on your street and your playground. Uh, if you want to call someone random who might have no idea what you're talking about, who is going to have to do a whole bunch of back-channel work to figure out what you're even talking about, uh, then call your public advocate, and that'll be, uh, that'll be a great thing for you. So if you're elected public advocate, the pitch is that you'll do what with the office? Either reform it. I mean, the, the first thing that needs to happen, and Jumani Williams and I, I believe, agree on this, uh, is to put the Department of Investigation under the purview of the public advocate. Not saying the public advocate's going to conduct the investigation himself or herself, but that the commissioner of DOI, who should be someone with an investigatory background, um, will be accountable to an independent elected official. There are 51 constitutions in the United States of America, and almost all of them, except the federal constitution, puts the chief law enforcement officer of a state as a separate elected position from the chief executive of the state. Our city should be the same thing. Just like we separate the comptroller's role from the mayor's role, we should also in, uh, separate this investigatory role from the, the person and the organization, the executive branch, that they should be investigating. So that's big structural reform. Yeah. Aside from that. That will require a charter revision, correct? Well, well certainly. I mean, and that's the irony, right, is that anything I'm talking about in, in terms of reforming the office can't be even done by the public advocate. I mean, the, the best I can do is, is cut the budget down by cutting the staff down and stuff like that. Um, but beyond that, it, it will take a referenda or, or, or a state, state law in some cases. I mean, I've also proposed putting the public advocate on the MTA board, for example, having an actual elected member of the public on the board that governs the majority of our lives and our frustrations. I mean, that would, that, again, that would make the office instantly worth something to the taxpayer. But you need the state legislation to do that. But to, to get that to happen, to get the state to change that legislation, to get a charter change, wouldn't you have to make the office more visible, more relevant, to convince people this needed to happen, to convince people that you could handle that kind of responsibility? Jared, so if they the budget would seem to... If they, elect, the if they elect a Republican in a six-and-a-half-to-one Democratic-enrolled city uh, like New York City, uh, I would say that the public would be ready for some fundamental change uh, that I could probably bring. That aside... You have promised to be a public advocate who will be much more of a thorn in the side of Mayor de Blasio. Um, are there specific issues on which you would try to do that? I mean, just just start from yesterday with, with Rikers Island. I mean, you know, there's a policy question of whether it's the right move or the wrong move, whether community jails are right or wrong, and that I'll leave it on the table. No one even discussed that the number, the estimate we use for our jail population, is a completely fabricated and made-up number. I mean, in 2017, uh, the city determined, the Bean County determined that, that we will have a jail population of 5,000 uh, in 2026. Uh, and then in 2018, as the need to shrink the size of the jails became apparent, suddenly that number became 4,000 people in the, in the year 2026. And then just in order to get through the city council, magically... Wow, what, what a coincidence, guys. Just as we needed to cut a couple of you know, stories of height off the buildings, the, the new bean counters determined that we would have the jail population of 3,300 people, just enough to get the, 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 the jails we need. If that passes anyone's sniff test, I have a bridge to sell them. Um, and, you know, so the fact that that wasn't even an issue being raised, that this is all you know, based on a myth. I mean, if you want close Rikers and have the policy discussion, that's fine, that's fair. If you want to fabricate the numbers and, 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 and potentially do something irresponsible, 
like you know mandate that we shut a facility without having the the necessary facilities we may need in 2026 we don't have the three-eyed raven by the way in the cupola in city hall so we don't really know how many people will be in the criminal justice system uh, in the pretrial for that matter criminal justice system in 2026 it's it's a, it's almost a dereliction of duty to just m- pass these laws uh, where we're going to shut down the facility without adequate ways to make it up. So I'm curious Rant about over that. on Rikers. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm so curious that's, about, that's that, one about Rikers because um, the numbers are obviously part of the picture. But now that the policy is in place, there actually are several decisions and moves that the mayor or next mayor will have to make. You know, the siting locations, decisions about design, actually hiring contractors and such. And so if you're a public advocate, you'd be in a position to sort of monitor that. And I'm curious how you'll approach that, because you disagree with the policy itself. You disagree with the policy of shutting down Rikers and building these borough jails. But that is now the stated policy of the city. So would you feel it's your duty to hold the city to that? Well, or if they shift if they shift direction under a future mayor to something more in line with your with your Sure, or, or, opinions, or the, would the, you support that? The more likely reality is that the city's not going to suddenly uh, figure out how to build things uh, cheap and on time, uh, and that Rikers Island will probably have to stay open longer than 2026. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that if you talk to people at City Hall, they've already almost accepted as, as, as something happening. But everything you mentioned, all the problems with siting uh, and, and the architecture, the design, the construction, the public advocate has absolutely no power to, to intervene in any of those things, short of doing press conferences calling out why the design uh, should be X and not Y. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, when you have angry people in a community that are concerned about what the jail's impact will be, then, then that, yes, that is a role for the public advocate to get out there in front of a microphone uh, and call out what the community doesn't want. Can the public advocate change the policy? Can we reverse Rikers at this point? Probably no. Uh, so that wouldn't be my number one priority because there would be almost no ability to do that. When you um, are making your pitch to voters, uh, you've been a city council member, you've been a state assembly member in the minority, Republican member of overwhelmingly Democratic uh, legislative bodies, what accomplishments are you able to point to? I mean, what things are you able to say to people that you've gotten done? So, I mean, I think in 2018, I was the seventh or eighth most prolific bill passer in the city council. Um, and I did that because I work with Democrats. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people see this image of me as this uh, Republican who, who likes to uh, uh, push people's buttons, which is certainly something I enjoy doing. But when it comes down to actually, you know, the brass tacks of, of governing New York City, um, I, I enjoy the work and I, I try to do it. I mean, I, as chairman of the, the city's uh, fire and, uh, and uh, emergency management committee, I mean, right now we are undertaking the once in every 10 to 15 years process of reevaluating and revising our entire fire code for the entire city of New York. I mean, this is this is what I do, you know, you know on my day job. I mean, this is what this is what the bulk of, of our day is taking up, and it's meeting with all the interest groups and activist groups, and and and, and really on the technical side more than anything, uh, you know, learning about building materials and, and and we're actually, you know, believe it or not, distilleries are a big thing. We actually scrapped distilleries from the fire code, you know, 50, 60 years ago when no one was distilling alcohol. And now suddenly all these right. trendy places are popping up, and alcohol is just a shade less flammable than gasoline. So uh, we might tastes need to. Though. It tastes a lot better, but it's equally dangerous if you're, you know, if you're living in a loft above a distillery, you might not, uh, might not want to smoke cigarettes and ash down That's the floor. Interesting. So, fun. In politics, especially at the national level, people often deride career politicians. And I'm curious how you feel when you hear criticism like that, because that this is, has been this has been your life's yeah. work. Is it right for people to be suspicious of of someone who is has only 
worked in and around uh, elective offices? Well, that's not true. I bartended for quite a while, and you know that that is a qualification that we now accept uh, in the public sphere of, of, uh, of, of, of you know, someone's creation for being uh, an elected official. Uh, I got fired like once or twice though, so don't don't. You know, hopefully that part's off record. Um, you know. The, the idea of the career politician is kind of eliminated when you, you realize that I'm 37 years old and I'm term limited. Like this, this won't be uh, the sum uh, of my career and I'll probably go on to do something completely different. Uh, not to mention, I mean, I, I teach uh, on the side. Uh, I'm one of the few council members who has and is allowed to and cleared for outside income. So I've been teaching political science and I write for the Hill and I do a whole bunch of other stuff that's beyond uh, just being a, a city council member. I mean, obviously that's the bulk of my time. but. You know, there's nothing wrong with dedicating a portion of your life to public service. And I think people get into the habit of um, disliking career politicians when they're not the politicians they want. When it's someone like Charlie Rangel, it's easy to say this is a career politician, but at the end of the day, uh, the people of Harlem voted for him consistently time and time again. They had a choice every single time and they chose him. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, hopefully I'm lucky enough to get reelected uh, next year if I don't win uh, for public advocate. And the critics will criticize and my supporters will support. So you raise the question of um, this election, being elected, not being elected. In our previous conversation in the summer, you said you acknowledge your chances are very slim. You just said earlier, you know, six and a half to one ratios of Democrats to Republican in the city. I'm curious, sort of in an election like this, turnout's going to be really low. Yeah. Wouldn't this be a little bit of an opportunity for Republicans and like-minded independents and more conservative Democrats to really try to steal a seat here? Uh, yeah, I mean, sure. Is there any sense of that? Uh, look, the, you know, if, if I'm putting my uh, taking my candidate hat off and putting my consultant hat off, I mean, I think the 17-person uh, the uh, special election would have been the better opportunity. Uh, and Republicans did come, come close. Yeah. Uh, Eric Ulrich came in second place. This is certainly an opportunity, but the voters do have voter fatigue almost of, of elections for this seat. Uh, you know, I, I saw this with uh, just struggling to get donations. Jumani Williams, uh, the incumbent, barely qualified mm -hmm. for matching funds himself. Uh, so there's been, you know, a, a general lack of enthusiasm up until the last, uh, you know, two or three weeks in the race. Frankly, it's going to have low turnout no matter what we do. I mean, this is just an off-year race. Um, it's before what's going to be the biggest race of our lifetime, as, as usual. Every four years, that seems to be the case. Um, but is it an opportunity? Sure. Is there a chance uh, that I can pull off the win? Yes. And if but I is, win... But, are, but do you have, is there any sense, because I'm not particularly seeing it, but I might be wrong, that like the Republican apparatus in the city are really putting... It Effort yeah, I mean, cer certainly in Staten Island, where we have a competitive judicial race, the party is uh, fairly active. Uh, in Queens, where there's a, a, an active district attorney race, so, you know, we'll, we'll be doing the digital ads, we'll be doing the robocalls, uh, we'll be doing all the sort of the things that are a little cheaper to do mm -hmm. as far as campaigning, staying away from the direct mail. Um, but, you know, we'll be out there as best as we can. And, you know, Jumani doesn't have much more money than us, so uh, I don't think you're going to see a flood of his stuff anywhere soon. Uh, you're well known as a supporter of the president, and you speak on television mm -hmm. in his behalf. I'm curious, since the last time we spoke, has anything that Donald Trump said or done given you pause, telling members of Congress to go back to countries they weren't born in, 
asking China to investigate Joe Biden, pulling Every, troops I mean, out of Syria. Does anything? Everything Donald Trump does gives me pause, uh, you know. But ultimately, I, I do support the uh, the president. Um, do you have a still. red line for that? Yeah, no, I, I do support the president. No, I mean, I, I don't have a red line. I mean, I don't think that that I don't think people should approach elections with red lines in mind. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it'll be a binary choice uh, for for general election voters between. Uh, the incumbent president uh, and whoever the Democrats happen to put up, and people will make their choices that way. Um, you know, if you if you believe the news of today, uh, just wait till the news of next week because the news cycles have changed and fluctuated. Um, what we thought was true one week was walked back the next. I remember when Adam Schiff had inconclusive evidence of, of Russian collusion, and that sort of died by the wayside. So I would never box myself into having any sort of uh, red line about him or anyone else. Last minute here. Um, you've got a few days before early voting kicks in. You've got um, a debate coming up, at least at least one debate. Um, what's your what's your sort of message going to be to New Yorkers about why Jamani Williams doesn't deserve to be reelected? I mean, are there things about his approach that you think are are really problematic. Look, you know, in a nutshell, right? Uh, you look at our first public advocate, Mark Green. Uh, I think he was probably the most effective public advocate we had because he was a progressive Democrat uh, at a time where we had a moderate, some would say, conservative Republican governing the city, and. You know, for better or worse, I mean, he was the effective opposition leader of the city of New York. Uh, he butt heads very famously with Rudy Giuliani, with lawsuits, with, with you know, tons of press conferences. I mean, even in the 90s, I mean, he was able to get sort of um, um, really buzzworthy uh, uh, generation of press on, on a number of things. Um, the office works better when you have someone that has a fundamentally different view than the mayor offering an alternative. If you ask Mayor de Blasio, I'm very confident he'd prefer to have his pr progressive ally like Jumani Williams uh, than someone who is a Republican who is his, is going to offer. And, and again, I'm not going to win every argument, right? But it's not about that. I mean, just look at, uh, you know, how Congress functions, how most legislative body functions. There's a duty in opposition. We had this Rikers Island vote pass, and there was, you know, almost no opposition from anywhere suggesting an alternative uh, plan or alternative options, uh, other than the far left who was saying, "Don't close jails in any, any jail, don't, don't build any new jails." I was jails in the first place. say, I don't know, right. if, I don't know if the mayor would prefer Jamani Williams beating him up from the left versus Joe Borelli beating him up from the right. That's interesting. Well, who made you? Who made the mayor flip out? I think it was me. It wasn't Jamani Williams. Mm. So. Um, I, I guess I get under his skin, and uh, if I'm the public advocate, I'll look forward to continue getting under his skin. And just quickly, that's about Thrive NYC that mm -hmm. you're referring to. Is would, You didn't mention that. Would that be that would be a major focus of your public advocate? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Jumani's office put out uh, a, a um, report on Thrive New York. I mean, I mean, the, the knock against that, I would say, is that that's after the, the council had hearings on it. That's after the comptroller had reports. That's after the mayor's own management report had a report saying Thrive New York is, is not doing well. Um, so a little, a little late uh, to the game. Um, the problem with Thrive is that Many people had uh, some investment in that program, uh, even me, who's an opponent of the mayor. Right? I mean, I had investment into the idea that we should be treating the severely mentally ill uh, that that are forced into essentially homelessness. They're the kind of street homeless, mental Ill, mentally ill people we tend to see more and more. I mean, Thrive has not met that obligation by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and the metrics they use to gauge their success are... are um, <laughs> they're measuring success on things we've already done. We've always had school guidance counselors. You know, I mean, so it's nice to think that we're doing something, and yeah, 
but are we actually addressing the problem? We're not. I mean, so I mean, Thrive's going to be on anyone's uh, target list in the next uh, couple of years. Not to mention, I mean, the mayor uh, put in place a new uh, mental illness policy for homeless that that put Thrive New York on the back burner. I mean, so even the mayor seems to be uh, distancing himself from his own not successful program. All right, we'll leave it there. Councilmember Joe Barilli, candidate for public advocate. Thank you. Thanks. And we're joined by Devin Balkand, the libertarian candidate for public advocate in the election coming up. Early voting starts October 26th, election day, November 5th. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real, real pleasure. So the Office of Public Advocate, what uh, what does it mean to you? You know, the, what the office should mean, I think, to all New Yorkers is the gateway to information about how the city works and how the city works, what's working in the city, what's not working in the city, and how it can be improved from a person who uh, isn't tied to a political machine or a political party and has a vested interest in everything looking great. Um, and I think that's, that's what the public advocate's supposed to be in, in the charter, which is oversight. Uh, of the city um, uh, and like and its agencies, uh, making sure that they're delivering what they're saying they're delivering, um, as well as organizing the information of the city so that the public can understand what's going on. And this is, you know, I mean, I'd love to talk about the Commission on Public uh, you know, Copic uh, on Public Information Communications because this is like one of the great. This could be one of the great strengths of the city is this commission. So let's come let's let's come yeah. back to the commission in a few minutes, but talk more about that vision, what you would do both in the oversight and the information and the gathering. Info- sure. Um, so my campaign's about five solutions. Uh, and those five solutions are real things that I think I could achieve as public advocate that will deliver real value as individual projects that people can understand and that they can see the effects of. Um, and so I'll go, I'll go, you know, over and over. I'm going to try to bring things back to uh, those five solutions. Um, but to give you the highest level overview, it's basically making lists. Each one of these things involves making lists uh, of information that someone should have made a list about earlier. And making lists is a really useful thing for people to do if they want to get stuff done. Um, so, like, just as an example, solution number one, which is uh, the two-on-one system. So almost every county in America, 90 plus percent of counties have what's called a 2-on-1 system. If you call 2-on-1, like, like New York, it's called 3-on-1. You call 2-on-1 on your phone, you're connected to uh, a call center operator who has in front of them a directory of all nonprofit social services that are available in that community. And they can make you a referral. They can give you information to, about whatever service that you need. And so this is... This is a simple thing that exists in almost every major city in America, almost every county in America, that is, it's literally the safety net. It's the list is, that directory information is the safety net. Um, The fact that we don't have that is uh, a travesty. Um, The fact that we don't talk about it is just one of those examples of New Yorkers just not being aware of what's happening in other places. And so one of the things that I would do as public advocate and what's desperately needed in this city is for someone to, like, raise their head above the New York City situation here and look globally for best practices and how to do things of all types. Like, we are so so big. We're so looking at ourselves internally. There's so many internal political dynamics that everyone's like, oh, this is difficult, this is difficult. But if we apply just global, like, best practices 
that exists globally for any problem that we have, like we're gonna see like much better results than what we have now. Um, so, so that's one example. Uh, you don't have to give all five, but what's another one? Uh, well, I mean, everything that in the past, I'm sure as you know, and, you've, and still in the present, politicians talk about like, we need to reform X, Y, Z, right? We need to reform, reform, reform. Very rarely do you actually see reform, right? There actually isn't even a good methodology or there hasn't been a good methodology for how do you reform uh, large organizations? How do you reform like large government bureaucracies? There hasn't just not been one. There is now a good methodology for it. It was created in the UK. It's called, gov it's called uh, Digital Transformation. It was created by the people who started the Government Digital Service, the GDS, in the UK. And they basically uh, use open source. It's kind of like an open source methodology, an agile methodology for how you take a lot of government services or information management services. You need something. You have to go through an informa a process of giving information. Someone's vetting information, delivering information back. So if you use like a service design concept, and I'm, I'm, I know that I'm using some like IT techie uh, buzzwords here or whatever, but this stuff is this stuff has become codified for how you actually transform organizations using modern technology. And this isn't in the style of kind of the Bloomberg era where you've got big contracts going to large IT vendors who are just like, who come in suits and just tell you what to do. Like that's actually the enemy of this, this, this type of methodology. And instead it's about building capacity internally in the government for using open source software packages and doing agile development of the products and services that New Yorkers need. Like it's really simple, it's actually really inexpensive. Planning Labs, which is a unit inside New York City City Planning, is the only digital service organization pursuing this type of digital transformation agenda in the city. They get hit politi like politically. It's a very tough thing to do because when you start doing digital transformation, um, then you're pissing off like, the entire IT community, like infrastructure. So you're pissing off Dell and HP and Microsoft, right? You're pissing off all of the commissioners, all of the kind of like contracts first style bureaucrats in city government, uh, and you're pissing off, um, basically you're, 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 you're creating an opportunity to rewrite how the bureaucracy works from a situation where the bureaucracy can actually be empowered. They don't have to ask IT vendors for permission to make changes in their operations. They can do it themselves, and so you're really creating, you're really, there's a, there's a lot of tension when that happens. And the guy who, uh, the guy who uh, kind of invent, like codified digital transformation, Mike Bracken, um, who's started Government Digital Service, he'll talk about how you know, the amount of lobbying that as soon as he started doing the real work, not like making prettier websites, but doing the real work of like, re inv like investigating the IT contracts, you know, tens, hundreds of, of, billion, of millions of dollars, uh, millions of pounds, starts like really looking into them, beginning to break them, beginning to not renew them. The amount of lobbying pressure that comes down on you when that happens is like, sh shows you that how real it is. Um, Let me take a step back, because as a libertarian, um, one might have expected to say that we don't need the Office of Public Advocate. That's something a lot of people have said over the years, that it's superfluous, it's another government office, it's a unjustified budget of several million dollars. It seems like you feel as though we do need one, uh, but it's not been used to its potential. Is that roughly your, your take? My take is that the city is close to a crisis, 
luckily things have been good. The economy has been good, but like we basically need every tool in our disposal at our disposal to transform how the city does business. Because when, if things go south, if the economy hits serious issues, uh, there are a lot of different variables that could like really impact the city that if we don't have like a properly fit city government, then like we're going to be in trouble. And that the public advocate could a hundred percent be a fantastic and like a really serious tool for making that type of change happen. And the fact that it hasn't been in the past is just the nature of uh, politics in New York. I mean, we're a one party town, uh, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a secret how like the Republican party works here in terms of just, you know, they don't try very hard mm-hmm. and they, they're, they have a serious interior. They maintain an, a close knit interior, like core group of people who like get to advance. So like, they're not bringing the competition necessary to the Democrats to prompt the Democrats to do something that would be very difficult. Digital transformation under democratic leadership would be really hard because you're, you're going to upset the unions. You're upsetting the bureaucracy. You're really reorganizing. You have the potential to really reorganize how government works. And that's what Democrat can really take that type of challenge on. I mean, it would be a, it would be a, it would be a difficult fight. So since you brought up sort of political parties and the, those dynamics, I mean, explain the sort of libertarian party status in, in New York and New York city. Um, obviously we talked to him last year, Larry Sharp was a, was a pretty dynamic, um, gubernatorial candidate. He got the number of votes needed to secure the ballot line for four years, which is pretty significant in New York. Um, but besides him as sort of a pretty dynamic individual, what's, where's the party at? You know, so we're going to have, now that we're approved, quote unquote, by New York state, you know, we have automatic ballot access for every position that and the Democrats and the Republicans have automatic ballot access for. And we also are the third biggest party in the country. Uh, we're the fastest growing political party in the country. And, you know, we're one big shakeup away uh, from like really achieving some like national notoriety in a way that we never have before. You know, our last election cycle on the president side, Gary Johnson got like three times more votes than any libertarian ever had. So we're at a point where the libertarian party could, whether it's you know through activity in New York or elsewhere, really like break onto the scene as like a, a viable third party that has the infrastructure nationwide to deliver like real real value, real results. Um, you know, at this at the state level, we're we're not. We're relatively well organized in at like in the counties. You know, the Libertarian Party has been in the past kind of a a, a rural and a suburban uh, party. It speaks to those uh, those types of values and the way that it's been branded and what, the way the media brands it. But that means that there's been a there is now and there a huge opportunity to create an urban agenda for the Libertarian Party. And at the same time, we're also seeing, I'm sure, as you've you're aware there's this concept of market urbanism that's beginning to emerge out of the ether of like the only type of city planning concepts necessary are, you know, uh, kind of lefty, you know? And so now we're seeing market urbanism say, wow, like you can be, uh, believe in market forces, but also believe that we need like world-class street design, (laughs) you know, and that we Mm -hmm. need to be open to all these different modes of transit and we need density, not just for, proper uh, funding of urban infrastructure, but also for environmental reasons, right? The most environmental thing we could do is have, is welcome as many people as possible to live as densely as possible in New York City, which gets me into things like the plastic bag ban. And it's like, wow, is this really, you don't want to talk about zone, you want to talk about, you know, 
like green new deal stuff, but you don't want to talk about zoning and like bring density in. You want to talk about like people not having plastic bags, but you're going to prevent us from welcoming another million people to live a lifestyle, like a city lifestyle that reduces their carbon footprint by like two or three times. Uh, it's, you're saying by allowing by allowing denser more housing. denser. I mean, density is is the key to to a lot of problems uh, in building that density. It's all that. But anyway, so the party, the Libertarian Party has not like is, is, is it's a giant opportunity. Basically, it's the biggest opportunity I've seen in in politics in a lot of things because there isn't an urban agenda. There is now in the Libertarian Party there is a philosophy, this market urbanism philosophy. Uh, that we can bring into the into the Libertarian Party, there isn't resistance in the LP for that, into the Libertarian Party for that. There's there's none. Like they're they're excited to see urban agendas, and we we're networking with the party here, is networking with the party in California, and San Francisco, and LA, and Chicago, and we're going to try to put together a proper urban agenda that actually makes philosophical sense, and so that you can be, you know, so and the Libertarian Party can hold these these diverse ideologies. You know, they're left libertarians and they're right libertarians and they're center libertarians and they're, you know, more anarchist libertarians. Like, it's actually uh, under certain ways, if you look at the political spectrum as a grid, like, we're half the grid. Uh, so, there's a big opportunity. What kind of libertarian are you? Uh, it's a com- I'm in, in, in libertarian land, I'm a pragmatic libertarian. I'm a pragmatic. So, we have caucuses and so I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the pragmatic caucus. And so, you know, I, I enjoy uh, discussions about, like, utopian visions of the future. I can engage in that. I'm, I'm down with it. It's cool. But, uh, you know, I want to meet reality where it is, like, ASAP, because we have to. But one of the nice things about libertarian philosophy is that a lot of change that happens that doesn't get credit is change that doesn't come the, from the political sphere, but comes from, like, the business sphere. So, like, things like, like who had more impact, what organization had more impact on transit in New York City in the last... 10 years? Is it the city council and the mayor and the state and all this stuff? Or is it, you know, a bunch of startups that came out of Silicon Valley or like, honestly, battery companies that have been improving these and these motors and batteries to do scooters, you know, and to do these e-bikes. So change comes from a lot of different directions. Um, and so, you know, basically, like, we're here and we're open. We're going to have all these spots. So I hope people are going to run for office. One of the things... How does this year's... So we only have a couple minutes left. How does this year's run? So you ran in 2017 got, I think, 7,000-some-odd votes yep. out of a million cast. 7,000 some You're running so now in a... In nice a, roundup. Yeah. <laughs> You're running now in a, uh, you know, an off-year election. Yeah. Um, how does this year's race get us to a place where libertarians have more influence over policy in the city, whether it's through winning elections or influencing policy? How do you see this shaping up as part of that process? It's a really good question. What I would like to tell you, what I hope is that, that people hear this broadcast, they look at my campaign and they say that there are there is a place in politics you can get on the ballot in New York City as like a pragmatic, you know, technocratic, I say in the good way, technocratic person who thinks that they have better ideas for how to deliver services faster, better, and cheaper than anybody else. That we actually have the infrastructure, we have the access to deliver those types of candidates. And these people should be welcome to to come on. Honestly, we're going to get, you know, New York City, like we're going to get a lot of people who aren't that in that mindset, who are going to be getting on the ballot as libertarians too. But, you know, I, I hope that they, you know, they're going to generate a lot of attention, hopefully, you know, one, like if they're well, successful, the they're thing. going to you generate a lot of generate attention. More attention. You know, I mean, Larry Sharp was able to do that in yeah. some ways, in part, I think maybe just by. I mean, he worked one of the hardest working mm-hmm. people I have seen 
Larry Sharp. You know, I'm more of an operations person. I'm more of a back-end style person. Right, well, that's, that's, so, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> that's the interesting thing about your candidacy. It, it is very technocratic, whereas, you know, you might have some more libertarian candidates like a Gary Johnson or Larry Sharp who are talking about issues more likely to garner. Yeah, you know, I, I know. <laughs> listen, I know, like, these. this is not, like, the most uh, press-friendly uh, campaign. campaign or like this isn't like a media dynamo here uh, and I'm not you know I'm on Twitter but I'm not like that type of social media mm-hmm. person like you need to be on Instagram you need to really be like promoting this type of stuff um, but you know when it comes to the five solutions like I guarantee you you are gonna you are gonna see the attention like a lot of people who pay attention like the people who read Gotham Gazette and listen to these podcasts they are like decision makers and people like deep in government some of them and, and in politics and they're going to look at these solutions and they're going to say like yeah this is like cheap and easy and let's take credit let's do it and let's not give him any credit bless them I hope they do it like I just want to see yeah. each one of these things I want to get done and you know I want to talk about number three um, last 30 seconds go ahead the public advocate should be the read the diplomat of the region Right? It should be going th- around the region. We're a 31-county region. The public advocate should be going to these counties and, say, and like helping them coordinate and helping them work with the city and with each other to do like density around transit, to, to, like make, to also publicize what decisions are being made at these things like the MAP Forum, you know, the, the Municipal Area Planning Forum, which people don't, un- don't know about, but these people are talking about, and they have open meetings that aren't very well promoted, like where are the freight lines going? Like where like big 20-, 30-year infrastructure plans are happening and a ton of agencies that we don't even know about. And so the public advocate in their, in their role as an information management person should be publicizing this but should also be going out as a regional, regional diplomat and saying, like, can't we get more housing outside of New York City? Like, let's work with you to do that. And, and I think that that's a, big, that's a big opportunity. And that would be a great thing for public advocate candidates who also want to show that they're relevant at the state level, that they can work not just in the city. So, you know, I hope... Well, we got to three of your five solutions and a bunch of other things. Which is pretty good. So, Devin Balkin, Libertarian for Public Advocate, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, votedevin.com. Public Advocate Jamani Williams, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, um, tell us, tell listeners, you've been in the job uh, six months or so. Uh, What have you done? What have you you accomplished so far as Public Advocate? Well, first, I'd like to thank listeners for getting me in the office to begin with. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, we got it in March. I think maybe it's about eight months or so. Um, one of the biggest things we've done is, has begun to restructure the office like we said we would. Um, and I came with the, you know, it makes sense that uh, former public advocate Tish James uh, had a, litigation as a big part. She's an attorney. Uh, I came in as a community organizer, so it makes sense that I have a, a slightly different lens. And we uh, came in with about... 10% of the staff, uh, Attorney General was nice enough to take most of her staff with her. Uh, so we've had the staff up, I think we're about 90, 95% now, which is exciting. And uh, we've changed the office uh, very much so. We have five deputy public advocates that are based from issue areas, uh, from housing to education. We're just getting ready to hire our bar advocates and other community organizers. Um, so we're very excited uh, about uh, what's what's about to happen here. We've put out a report so far on emotionally disturbed persons, um, which is interesting because we see the mayor has done some stuff too. We can talk about that if we want. I don't think it goes as far as we need it to go. And definitely not the way the report does. But I'm excited about that to have helped push this conversation, something I've been talking about for a very long time. We've passed more pieces of legislation than any public advocate in this amount of time. So that's also exciting. Unfortunately, I've also had to spend some time 
running for a race that's coming up, which is why we're talking now. Yes, second uh, second special election in a short time. Why don't you go into that a little more about the emotionally disturbed persons, or I guess that term is being retired, yeah. but um, your recommendations compared to what the city is now planning to do? Well, there are two big um, glaring warnings that I have about what I've seen so far. The first is they are basically saying they're adopting uh, recommendations for a report that hasn't been made public yet. So I think we're almost about 600 days late on the mayor's report. Um, Let me back up one sec. This is about how the city often, in the past, the NYPD, responds to 911 calls around an emotionally disturbed person acting erratically in some way. So initially, yes. So I remember uh, Dwayne June was killed in my district. We asked for a task force to discuss this. The mayor said no. Uh, Sahid Vassal was killed. Uh, they finally said yes. They put a task force together. They said they wanted a task force to focus not just on, the, on NYPD, but the entire city response to um, mental health and, and mental illness and people who are in acute mental crisis. Great. Uh, 600 days, no report. So we put out our report. Uh, the fundamental one, as I mentioned, they're now saying they're adopting and immediately putting funding in to recommendations that the public hasn't seen uh, so they've made a decision that these recommendations are what we should be doing, and of course we need to fund it. The second is they have a problem with adopting and saying that the best way we should respond is a non-police model. And so um, I have no problem as we're trying to figure that out. Uh, we have to do some of these things, but they seem to have adopted the co-response model. Like that seems where they're putting their eggs, and that's unfortunate. I hope it's not true, but that's what it seems right now, and that's not what we need. The presence of a, we've all learned that the presence of a police officer and someone who's in acute uh, mental distress can raise uh, the stress of the situation. And very often people who are with the police officer say um, they don't have control of the scene, the police officer does. And so I've supported it as we get to the non-police model. But if that's not where we're going, then this is the wrong path. Um, we're also hoping that we have another number that people can call so that it's not just 911. Um, you know, NYC Well is a good number, it's kind of long. Uh, so it would be great if people had a number like 911 I think we suggested 211. Uh, so people can just call and get a mental health response as opposed to a police response. Uh, the COATS model in Oregon, um, mental health professionals go out. If they assess that they actually need some additional support, then they'll be the ones to call the police. So if you are successful here, this second special election, you'll get the rest of the term, 2020, 2021. What are some of the top line goals? What are some of the promises you would make to voters now to say, okay, let me finish out this this full term, uh, the rest of this full term, and here's here's a few of the top things I'll do. Um, so just because it's a general election, it's not necessarily a special, it's actual uh, a general. And thankfully, no one ran for me, uh, ran against me in the... In the, in the primary, because that would have been three. We would have to have three elections mm-hmm. in one year. Our our election uh, election law are crazy and need to be changed. And then, yes, uh, so I'll be starting to run again probably next year. <laughs> for like three out of the five years or 44, I've, I've been running for something. So mm-hmm. I'm tired of running. I'd like to just uh, get in one place and actually focus on the work. I try very hard not to make campaign promises. Uh, I just try to say this is the vision I have. This is how I plan to get it achieved. And it's really very similar to what we said when we ran in the special. Um, one, you know, you have the, the five uh, the five powers that the charter gave, legislatively, 
you can put in legislation. You have an, uh, as an ombudsman to go between between people and and uh, government, charter cop, or we want to spend a lot of time there, hopefully, making sure agencies are doing their charter mandated duties. You get to appoint people to uh, organizations, uh, commissions like the City Planning Commission. We've made one appointment to the TLC, uh, and you have a vote on the pension board, which is pretty important. I really want to get into that and see if there's anything we should be divesting from or divesting more, which is really important. On top of that, using the bully pulpit and the ability to push out and raise issues around housing, gun violence, trans transparency in government, and of course, uh, Cuomo's MTA uh, is critically important. Shout out to Andy Byford for withdrawing his uh, resignation. Um, we don't agree on everything, but I think he's the right man for this job, and I was very sad uh, that uh, Cuomo might have bullied out another one, but I'm glad he's, he's back. And so I think those are criti you know, critical issues that everybody cares about, uh, and, and education, of course. Uh, I spent more time discussing education issues than I thought I would this early, uh, but it's another critically important topic. Compared to what you expected before the special election in February, have you made as much uh, traction on that vision as you expected? Uh, have you encountered any surprises about the limitations of the office? Anything when you got to look under the hood that has made it more difficult to enact what you, what you proposed? I, you know, I think I, I had a good idea of what to expect. And so um, I, there's been good surprises, like the fact we were able to get I think an additional $700,000, $800,000 for the office. Um, and that we, if people come out and vote, may have an independent budget, which I think is critical. It sucks if you have to go ask the people for money that you're supposed to hold accountable. This is one of the charter revision proposals that will also be on the ballot. So there, there's been mostly um, good surprises. I mean, there's some things here and there operational-wise um, that is sometimes a little... I would have liked to have, I'd like to be close to 100% now um, with the staffing. So staffing took a little bit more time, but we got the right people. So I'm very excited about our team, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off in the long run. So, so to connect your last two answers, um, you know, you, you might not want to make specific, I don't know, promises on, on certain accomplishments, but once you get this team together, what are, those, what are some of the things that you'll at least pledge to voters that your team will start doing that, that they haven't started doing yet. You know, like if you if you if you lose this election, your this all this staffing isn't gonna get to do you know execute your vision. So like what what is what is what specifically are they gonna execute? You know, many of the things that this has empowered me to do a lot of things that we couldn't do simply as a councilman. This report is a big one. Uh, something that I was hoping the city would do for quite a long time. I just didn't have the resources to do it. Uh, since we got in there Boom, um, we got it done. We are going to continue pushing on a bill that I already have in uh, asking for a moratorium on rezoning. That we, uh, one, we think we have to fix MIH because it was a failure. Uh, the mayor pushed forth a failed proposal and the city passed a failed proposal. Um, and uh, we asked for a racial impact study to be done before every single rezoning so that we can see the impacts. That's something we definitely want to push on. We've been helping. Uh, lead the conversation around gun violence and uh, now that I have citywide uh, perch I'm hoping that that will be able to go even uh, even further than where we're going right now but there's a you know there's a lot of issues that as a council member you can bring up and but as a public advocate it's 
that so much more impactful. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited when I speak uh, from something as simple as uh, the mayor, use, uh, the governor using a word that he shouldn't use, but uh, being able to be a part of that conversation, uh, what that means to be able to push the conversation around um, how we treat mental uh, people with uh, mental illness. I'm hoping, you know, as the bully pulpit continues to shine a spotlight that this is actually Cuomo's MTA and we have to, uh, the city has over 60% of the budget in there, but none of the control. And so being a part of those conversations on behalf of the residents are critically important. And then there are issues just like taxes. Like that's a big issue uh, that I think my, uh, my opponent thinks he has a lock on it. Uh, but those are real issues that people sometimes forget uh, because of what I've been known to fight all about the most, that my district was primarily one or two family homeowners, dealing with the issues that one or two family homeowners deal with. And that's why I was part of the lawsuit trying to force this mayor to deal with the tax inequities that's going on. And as a public advocate, you know, maybe I'll be able to do another report on that and figure it out, help him figure it out since he's having a, having a tough time. Yeah, it's another one where there's an overdue report on property taxes. <laughs> so there's a critique that's long been made about the ombudsman role of the public advocate office that, given that role, the person in it should be um, distinct from the mayor in a lot of ways, and not just personally, but ideologically as well. And so obviously one of the critiques of, of you is that while you and the mayor have some differences, there are, there are places where you've been allies in the past and there is some overlap in your philosophies. Do you think that you are able to challenge Mayor de Blasio as much as, say, a conservative Republican from Staten Island would be able to? Uh, I would just ask people to ask what the mayor thinks about that. And I think uh, it's just interesting to hear that. I know, uh, and I, you know, Beretta and I get along, actually. Um, we agree on almost nothing, but we get along. But it's interesting that he says that because party has never been a, a real big issue for me. I ran against the person who's in charge of the Democratic Party of the state. Um, I haven't heard Beretti say much about the president who's of his own party. And so it's just interesting that he brings that up. And if you look at our records um, to see who kind of toes the party line, uh, it ain't me. And so uh, I got this job to be a check. I have been a check. Uh, I think it was sitting in state that listed me as one of the enemies when we were running. But then with 17 of us, it was, it was me and Eric Ulrich. <laughs> that were on the enemy side. I, I don't want to call myself an enemy. Um, I don't. That's not a prideful thing. I do want to say that I take a lot of value in this job. I don't take it for granted. And friends or people who belong to the same party, you just need to do the right thing. And I have unabashedly uh, been clear that the Democratic Party, that the th issues we're dealing with now are, are not Donald Trump. There were Democrats uh, in this city, in this state, across this nation that had power and did not do what they were supposed to do with it, and they need to be held in check. One of the ballot questions, as you mentioned, coming up on the same in the same election here, that, that you're on the ballot again, um, it would part of it would grant an independent budget to the public advocate and the borough presidents. I'm curious about um, one of the other ballot questions, number one, which is to institute ranked choice voting. Is that something you're in favor of? Because I that. That would have been in your in your prior the special election yeah. that happened in February. I am in favor of voting yes on all of the ballot initiatives, okay. including the ranked choice vote. I really think it it will have a uh, one. I think it's going to save money. Uh, we don't have to have these runoffs. Uh, and two, I really think it's going to have people thinking about how they converse during elections and visiting areas that they don't normally visit. But I just came from Kingsborough speaking to some students there. And one lady, uh, she uh, was describing how she's from Coney Island. Nobody comes there. 
Uh, I think this will change that kind of thing because everybody wants to be everyone's second. First or second, yeah. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I'm favorable. If you're reelected, you'll be in office as the 2021 city campaign starts up. And I'm wondering, do you think you will endorse in that mayoral race and, and then be faced with the possibility of being the ombudsperson to an incumbent you endorse? How will you approach, I know you have your own election that year, but how will you approach independence versus being part of the process in 2021? Well, one, thanks for asking, not asking if I'm running for mayor. I appreciate that. So you said it enough times. But people don't seem to believe me. Well, uh, you'll get asked more. You'll, don't worry. Um, I really don't know. It's interesting. Um, and I've been grappling with how many endorsements do I actually want to make in 2021. The whole city is going to be up, mm -hmm. which is, you know, no one, I'll say it here again, the council needs to have a third term. No one wants to touch it because they're scared. It was funny when I mentioned in city can is when I wanted to speak up. Everybody agreed. Two days later, it got hot, and everybody changed their mind. Um, but the system is not a good one the way it is, with the city council having the same exact time as the mayor. That's whole cities up at the same time. You do need to have that, I think, one-off uh, term so that they can hold the mayor accountable um, correctly. That has nothing to do with me, because I'm not going to get it. But I think it's good for good government. And we've never asked this question. People keep saying we asked it before. We didn't. There was a preset question that was put in. It didn't differ between the council and the mayor. It didn't explain that there's a different role for them. Uh, and they didn't even ask uh, if, what the number should be. Like there was a preset question that didn't ask this question. We should ask people specifically about the legislature and not the executives. But, um, so I have to decide. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's the, the field is getting crowded already. Um, it is safer not to endorse uh, on so many levels. Uh, but, you know, my voice might be important at that time. Who knows? But I think regardless of endorsement or not, my job is to hold uh, mayor and, and to some extent the council accountable, and I plan to do that whomever it is. All right, we're going to leave it there. Public Advocate Jamani Williams, thanks for taking some time. Uh, and uh, if you secure the, the seat again, we'll talk to you uh, again soon. Thank you. Please go to jamaniwilliams.com. And donate, because we're not getting matching funds. I forgot to speak about that. I'm set at CFB. That's another question. So that was the three candidates for public advocate in the election that starts with early voting in just a few days and officially kicks off or takes place on Election Day in about two weeks from now. Three different visions for an office that really reflects the vision of the person who takes it. And we'll have to see not just who wins, but, uh, but how much the vision is put into effect over the remainder of this term, which, as Ben said at the outset, is until January 31st, sorry, December 31st, 2021, barring some other crazy happenstance. Yeah, and as both Borelli and Balkan, you know, are well aware, Jamani Williams is a heavy favorite here, but in a low turnout election, you never know what can happen. And obviously, thanks to hearing from the candidates here on this podcast, everybody should be ready to vote, choose their favorite, look up more information if you need it. Also on the ballot, though, for early voting and on Election Day, November 5th, there will be five ballot questions placed there by the 2019 Charter Revision Commission. Some really interesting stuff that New Yorkers can choose yes or no to add to the governance structure or the election systems in New York. And our next episode coming up soon, we'll dive into those five ballot questions with a couple of experts. So stay tuned for that. Coming up soon from Max and Murphy. And thanks for listening here Until today. Until then, have a great week and a great city <laughs> in the world. Yes.